If you would please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We're thinking about God's judgments and God's deliverance. In verses 1 through 3, Peter warned about the reality and the dangers of false teachers and the false faith that they were promoting. Now, it naturally begs the question, okay, if there are false teachers, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't He blast them from heaven with a great lightning bolt and just eliminate the problem? Do you ever wonder why God is patient with evil? Why does He put up with it? Why does He allow evil to continue on its own rebellious course? Well, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do know this. God is demonstrating His mercy, His grace, His patience with you and me. Because have you and I ever done something that was wrong, that was evil? Have you had an evil thought even this morning? Perhaps even as you're sitting here right now, and if God were to blast us, for that, at the moment when it occurred, the room would be empty. So while I may not understand everything that God is doing when He allows evil sometimes to continue and even to grow, I understand a couple things. One thing I understand is that God is still in control. Evil is not greater than He is. I understand that God is exercising mercy and grace and giving evil people an opportunity to repent and to turn to Him. And God is not forgetful. He is storing up wrath against the day of judgment. Because though evil may seem to prosper for a while, it will not do so forever. There is a day of judgment that is coming from Almighty God against all manner of rebellion, angelic or human. And God will deal with it according to His righteousness and His holiness. We're going to see that illustrated in these verses that we're looking at today. God is holy and He must judge but God also, in His mercy and grace, extends salvation to those who trust in Him. We have three examples of rebellion. Just to get the text set in our minds, let me read it for you. And How many of you remember it when you were in school, your teacher said, don't make run-on sentences? Anybody remember that? I remember that when I was in school. Yeah, you just, you start and you just keep going and going and going and there's no punctuation and it just, it just kind of flows all together. Well, this is a run-on sentence, if you will. Peter had a thought and he's building a case and it's a rather complex thing. It starts in verse 4 with an if and it doesn't end until verse 11. That's one sentence. But the key is in verse 9. Then. So you have, if all of this, then all of this. So let's see if we can set it in our minds here this morning. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh 
in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. See if we can help to, to get this thing firmly fixed in our minds and see what Peter is talking about. He mentions three different acts of rebellion that are set forth as examples of how God deals with rebellious creatures. The first one is angelic. The second and third are human beings. So God deals with rebellion. He deals with sin at all levels. He's not restricted in how he deals with rebellion. The first one is there in verse 4. This is the angelic rebellion. He did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, uh, it talks about the devil who sinned from the beginning. And we see, for example, in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, some descriptions there of Satan's rebellion. Now, Satan was a created angel. And it says, the scripture says, that he was created perfect in his ways. He was one of the most beautiful of angels. And in fact, if we understand the scripture correctly, he was the angel who sort of had the responsibility of hovering above the throne of God. If you look in Revelation uh, at various descriptions of the throne, you see there's angels all around. Uh, in, in Ezekiel, he's, the throne is being carried along by four angelic beings, four seraphim that are the burning ones, is what the word seraph means, seraphim. Uh, and, and they're supporting the throne. And you get this picture that around God are all of these angelic beings ministering to Him, crying out to Him, speaking of His holiness, offering eternal worship and praise. And if we understand it correctly, and I think we do, Satan was that angel who was given the place to fulfill the, the whole orb, if you will, the whole 360 degree level of praise around God. And it's scripture again says that because of his exalted place, pride entered his heart. And he says, I will ascend above the throne of God. I will make my dwelling in the mountain in the sides of the north. He, he says, I will, five times there in Isaiah 14, he's going to exalt himself. And he rebels and he begins the rebellion against God. And apparently he leads other angels in that rebellion. Now I, that's, that's almost more than I can wrap my head around because these angels were the first things that God created. Job tells us that the angels, the sons of God, shouted for joy when God brought all the rest of creation into existence. So they were the very first things that God created. They got to see God fling the stars into space. To hang the world on nothing. To bring it into existence out of nothing. They got to see God create Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathe life into him so that Adam became a living soul. The angels were witnesses to that and they rejoiced in that. And they were there in God's presence around His throne. And yet some of them rebelled. Theirs was a rebellion with absolutely full knowledge and understanding of what they were doing. And yet, Satan and those angels that followed him thought they could beat God. How utterly foolish that the creature should be able to overcome the creator. I mean, that's ridiculous. But beloved, that's what sin does. 
sin, pride, if you will. Doesn't our pride make us think that we can do things and get away with things that common sense says, no, you can't do that and you can't get away with it. But we think, we think we're too good to be, I mean, we're too important, not morally good, but we're too important, we're too powerful, we're too whatever, and, and it's not going to catch up with us. We're going to be the exception. We're going to be able to do this thing that is contrary to the Word of God and get away with it. And God won't know. That's sin. That's pride. That's rebellion. That was at the very heart of what Satan did in that earliest moments of creation. And it's what he led Adam and Eve to do as they rebelled against God. You remember his tactics, don't you? First question the word. Did God really say and then deny that God said And then offer a substitute. A different way of looking at things. A different system of belief. A different way of interpreting reality. And Satan has been doing that ever since. Scripture talks about the doctrine of demons. And, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's a, a rebellious thought from the pit of hell that permeates all of humanity and makes us think we don't need God, we can handle things all by ourselves. I don't need to acknowledge the Creator. I don't need to seek wisdom from Him. I don't need to depend on Him for life and health and strength. I can do it all on my own. Can we? No. We can't. But here's another element about sin. It is so self-deceptive and so able to twist our thinking that even when we see all the failures of all the lives of people around us who have rebelled against God, we don't learn a lesson. We think we can still rebel and keep on living and keep on doing what we want to do. How dark, how blind is that deception that comes from within each of us. The first rebellion was that angelic rebellion. The second rebellion is recorded there for us in verse 5. Uh, yes. And did not spare the ancient world. This is the pre-flood world. This is the world that God brought judgment upon and you and I are still connected with that world. Where do you think all our fossil fuels come from? Did you ever think about that? When God brought a global flood on this world and killed multitudes of millions of animals, people, compacted them down. Evolutionists tell us that it takes millions of years. Mm -mm. Nope, not at all. It just takes a lot of pressure. And you can turn all of those dead bodies into oil, coal, for, for plants, you know, it's just compressed plant matter. The world that was before still is a part of this world today. We don't think about that. We don't want to believe that. We want to think that Noah's Ark and the flood was just some little cartoon thing that you know we can give to kids as a coloring paper. Keep them busy for half an hour or so. No, beloved, the world that was is a real place filled with real people. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus understood that the pre-flood world was real. It wasn't make-believe. And he understood that it was a global flood. Because he talks about the whole world being like it was in the days of Noah. We don't know a lot about that world because the destruction was so thorough, so complete, 
But I have a suspicion, and this is just my opinion, you can take it for what it's worth, that that world was no less advanced, to use the modern term, or sophisticated, or whatever, than what this world is. As many people, we've got what, seven and a half, almost eight billion people on the planet today? Could there have been that many prior to the flood? You had a much friendlier environment then. You had much less disease then. It seems like people lived an awful lot longer then after the flood instead of seven, eight, nine hundred years. Now you're getting three, four, maybe five hundred years. And eventually you get down to in the low hundreds and then eventually you get down to like 70 years. So if somebody lived for six, seven hundred, eight hundred years, how many kids could they have? How big would the families be? How huge might the population have been? Because I don't think that, you know, somebody, well, Noah uh, at uh, 600, I don't think was a feeble old man. Not like you and I think of feebleness today. I think he was a strong and, and virile man. But the flood came because they willfully turned against God. Genesis 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, I think it is, says that the only intent and thought of their heart was only evil continually. Which is amazing. Because you think about the pre-flood world for just a minute. I believe the Garden of Eden was still there and still visible. After Genesis chapter 3, when Adam is driven out of the garden, it doesn't just evaporate into a mist. God stationed an angel at the entrance to the garden to keep people from coming back in. I think that garden and that angel and that prohibition were, was evidence positive of God's existence, the sin and rebellion of mankind, and their loss, and their inability to get back to the place where God had originally intended them to be. I think the garden was destroyed in the flood. In fact, four of the river, there's four rivers mentioned in relationship to the Garden of Eden. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. We only know where two of them are. And they don't seem to be flowing in the same direction that they used to be. Because Scripture says that they flowed out of the Garden. They, they were one and they broke all, there was one river and it broke into four heads or four rivers and, and it names the four. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case now. The headwaters of the Tigris and the headwaters of the Euphrates are in the mountains there in Turkey and in some of those little somebody stand countries. I didn't check my geography this morning to refresh my memory. But there's, I don't know where the other two rivers are. So it seems like when God brought judgment on the world in the flood, he also destroyed the garden. There was plenty of testimony for that pre-flood world. There was also a man named Enoch who was a preacher of righteousness and whom God miraculously removed out of the world. when He, he was just a young 365 years of age and he walked with God and God took him. And I think that in itself became a testimony to the people living at that time. There was all kinds of testimony about God and, and mankind, and yet they willfully turned from God. Instead of falling on their knees and confessing their sin and their lostness, they turned their minds to only evil continually. Do we see that in our world today? Is it like it was in the days of Noah? In the human heart? I think so. There's another example of judgment. This in uh, verse 6. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. 
Condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Of course, the great sin, the most notable of Sodom and Gomorrah, was the homosexuality issue. But it didn't start there. If I read Romans chapter 1 correctly, sexual perversion is the culmination of a series of decisions to turn away from God. Romans chapter 1 says that they, what they knew about God they willfully suppressed and they didn't want that knowledge. And instead of the creature worshiping the Creator, they decided that they're going to worship the image of man and beasts and birds and all those other things. They're going to willfully suppress their knowledge and they're going to create some alternate false religions. They want to be able to feel good about themselves and feel like they're doing something spiritual, but they're not interested in the truth. Now that progresses, I don't know if I want to use the word progress because that makes us sound like it's going up, like it's a good thing. It, it digresses, it devolves, it goes downward from there. And results in absolute moral corruption. It's an effort to change the very way in which the Creator created us, male and female. We're not going to be male and female. I'm going to determine my gender, my very nature. That seems a little strong, doesn't it? That the creature could say to the Creator, why did you make me this way? You did a bad job. You made a wrong choice. I know better than you. I'm going to do what I want to do. But isn't that the essence of all rebellion? Isn't that the essence of all of it? When little kids don't listen to mom and dad who've given them instructions, Aren't the little kids saying, you don't know what you're talking about, I know better than you do, I'm going to do what I want to do? It's the same thing. Rebellion permeates humanity at every level and at every kind of expression. And God brings judgment upon that rebellion. Three incredible moments. First in the angelic world. And there is no hope of any kind of forgiveness or anything. I mean, that rebellion was of such a nature that, that there's no possibility of forgiveness. And in the human realm... It was of such a nature that it was complete and thorough. But here's the good news. God, who is rich in mercy, extends mercy and grace to rebellious humanity. There will be no rebellious forgiven angel in heaven. None whatsoever. They will all be in the lake of fire. But there will be, praise God, forgiven human rebels. Forgiven because we have come to Jesus Christ and we have confessed our sin and we have sought His forgiveness. Forgiven because God was willing to send His Son to pay the penalty, the eternal penalty for our sin so that we might go free. So that we might not be cast into the lake of fire forever with the devil and his angels, but instead might enjoy God's presence forever with Him in the new heavens and new earth. Notice what it says here about God's deliverance. First of all, let's think about His deliverance of Noah. Verse 9. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but He saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Now, when it says that Noah is a righteous man, when it says later on in, in 2 Peter that, that 
Lot was a righteous man. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. Noah was not saved by God because Noah, of all people, was perfect. Noah had a sin nature. He was a descendant of Adam, just as you and I are descendants of Adam. And as descendants of Adam, we all have a sin nature. And, and Noah had that. But the difference is, Noah walked with God. Noah recognized that he was a creature and God is the creator. Noah recognized that the wickedness and the evil in him, he was not able of his own will to get rid of or even to control it. And in some way, he responded to the revelation that God gave of himself to mankind before the flood. I mentioned already a couple things about the garden, and certainly there was Adam's own testimony of his creation and fall and so forth, and the skins that God provided to cover their nakedness. Abel must have understood that because he brought a blood sacrifice. There was lots of evidence in that pre-flood world, and Noah looked at it, believed it, acted upon it, and God saved him. You see, salvation is always by God's grace through faith. Doesn't matter which side of the cross we're on. Doesn't matter which side of the flood we're on. God's salvation is always by God's mercy, by God's grace, made active in faith. And so Noah was saved. And I think Noah must have had an influence on his family because it says it wasn't just Noah, it was his family. This is Noah. The three boys and their wives. And remember, they were living in a world where it said that every thought and intent of the heart was only evil continually. I wonder if they felt like a a little island in the midst of a cesspool of sin. You ever feel that way where you live? You ever feel like you're kind of maybe the only one or one of just a few believers? And it gets hard, doesn't it? It's hard. When all the world around you is pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing its own wicked and evil thoughts, isn't it hard to stand up for the truth? Yeah, it is. But God notices. And God took notice of Noah. And God delivered Noah out of that mess. God brought judgment against that ungodly world. And in the midst of that judgment, God had Noah build a little ark. Well, it's not very little if you've seen it seen the replica there in uh, uh, at the Creation Museum, you know it's not small. It's like 450 feet long, 75 feet high. Things gigantic. But in comparison to the world, it was small. And God shut Noah up in there and God saved him from death. Beloved, remember we memorized a while back Colossians chapter 3 it says since then you were raised with Christ set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your mind on things above not on things on the earth for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God your life is kept safe by Almighty God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When the storm is passed, when the judgment is finished, God will bring us forth with Him in glory and splendor and majesty. Revelation describes it as the church coming as a bride dressed beautifully for her bridegroom in all her resplendent glory without any spot or blemish. 
God brought Noah through that judgment, preserved him alive, removed all the wicked, and gave Noah a brand new world. That's a little picture. That's a little picture of what God is doing right now in this world for those who put their trust in Him. Now, don't forget, Noah was in the boat, and I think probably it was doing one of these. Anybody get seasick? <laughs> you know, might have been rolling a little bit. He heard the storm, heard the thunder, heard the lightning, heard the earthquakes as the fountains of the deep were broken up, as the sky poured down rain, which had never happened before. You know, it's kind of terrifying, isn't it? Do any of you get awake at night when there's a big, strong windstorm, and you, you kind of hear the wind whipping around the side of the house, and, and maybe you hear trees sometimes creaking or whatever, and, and it kind of makes your heart run a little fast, and you think, man, I hope we survive through the night. I hope the roof stays on, and can be a little scary, can it? I'm sure that when Noah and his family was in the boat, it got a little scary on the outside. Especially as he heard the screams of those who were dying. The judgment of God is a terrifying thing. But for those of us who know Him, who believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Though the turmoil may be all around us, we can have peace in the midst of the storm, knowing that God fully understands how to deliver His own. Let's think about Lot for a minute. Noah was, uh, Noah was easy. Noah was a man who loved the Lord. He walked in the Lord's ways. He, he knew God. He walked with God. But what about Lot? Now talk about a different perspective. Notice what Peter says about Lot. He delivered, in verse 7, righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Three times he says that Lot is a righteous man. Have you read the account in Genesis? Doesn't quite look like a righteous guy, does he? I think there's a very good reason why this is used as an example. Because for so many people, we live in a, at a point of progress and growth. And we are not yet what we ought to be. We're somewhere struggling in the midst of the mess. Let's think about Lot for a minute. We start his story in Genesis chapter 12, and if you want to follow along, that's fine, but in Genesis chapter 12, he associates himself with Abram, his uncle, who is the man blessed by God, called by God out of the city of Ur, out of the city of, of idolatry and so forth, to, to walk with God, to have a relationship with God, and to go to a place that God was going to show him. And Lot goes along. He's not a little kid. He's a young, well, at least a young man. He might be a, a, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old. We don't really know how old Lot is at the time. He is the nephew of Abraham, who was about 75 at the time. So how old are 75, you know, nephews of 75-year-old guys? Lot goes with him, makes a choice. Says, hey, Uncle Abraham, I want to go. I'm going to associate myself with you. So they get on to Haran, and Lot's father dies. Lot, or, uh, Lot's grandfather dies. Abraham's father dies. And they go on south, and they get down into the land of Canaan. And Lot is a wealthy man of himself. He's got a family, he's got flocks, he's got herds, he's got great wealth, he's got servants. And there's just not enough pasture land for Abraham, who is an extremely wealthy man with lots of family and lots of flocks and lots of herds and lots of servants. The land can't support them. So Abraham says to Lot, you make a choice. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Whatever, you, know, you, you make the choice. 
And in Genesis chapter 13, it says that Lot saw the well-watered plains of the valley. Down there by Sodom and Gomorrah it was beautiful, beautiful area. It was a, a place where there was plenty of pasture land, there was abundant water, there was already lots of food down there. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. But there's a verse earlier on that we so often overlook, and it says, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked before the Lord. Yes, it was a beautiful place. It was well-situated and great for agriculture. But it was a wicked place. And that's what Lot chose. Man, bad choice, Lot. Bad choice. Why are you a man who has associated himself with Abraham, a man who, who knows God, why are you making the choice to associate yourself with the world? Why are you making the choice based on the desires of your own heart? And it created problems for Lot for the rest of his life. It's interesting, back here in 2 Peter, he says that he delivered righteous Lot. Lot, I think, was a man who was trusting God, believing God, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. He allowed the material blessings of the place to run his life and his decision making, but spiritually he was wretched inside. So how many of us as believers in Jesus Christ have made a choice to associate with things that we knew were wrong, but we thought we could get by with it and it wouldn't affect us, but we found that it made us feel miserable inside. Have you ever done it? I did. I have. <laughs> You know, I've made some really dumb choices in life. Thinking that, you know, as a believer we can, ah, God's not going to bother us too much. We can get by with it. We can kind of get as close to the world as we possibly can and still not get burned. Beloved, you can't. Apparently there was a clear distinction with Noah. You know, he, he made a complete break. He, he was not in agreement with what was going on in the world around him and he tried his very best to make that distinction in righteousness. Lot shows us a little different picture. Lot's trying to get close to the world. He wants, he wants the blessings and benefits of this world and yet he wants to follow God and I think that describes so many Christians today. Oh, they know Jesus and they, they put their trust in Him for salvation, but the world is so attractive, they just can't make that break with sin and it vexes their soul. They are miserable inside. The Spirit of God works in their hearts and in their minds and makes them horrible. There's a solution to that problem and that's to confess and to forsake those choices. The word repent, which is the word Jesus used when he came into this world and was, was preaching the gospel, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It, it means, it encompasses not only to recognize the bad choice that you made and to be sorry for it, but to turn around and go the other way. Don't keep going in the bad direction. The word repent means to turn and so many Christians, they, they confess and they admit their sin, but they never turn the other way. And so they're miserable all of their life. They bring the problems on themselves. They vex their own soul. They don't have any peace because they're trying to live in two worlds. But the moment of crisis came for Lot, you know, the angels showed up in Genesis chapter 19. They showed up and they were ready to destroy the cities. And, uh, well, Lot had to make a choice. 
you read in Genesis 19, it, it talks about that a little bit. He saw them come and he invited them into his home because he knew what would happen to them if they stayed in the public square that night. The public square was where travelers would be able to stay if they were coming into a city. You know, they didn't have like Motel 6 and things like that back in those days. And so you would just stay in the public square. But Lot understood what would happen to these two amazing beings. They were angels sent by God. And so Lot invited them to his home. Well, that's good. He's got a little spiritual discernment there. That's, that's a good thing. But then when the men of the city surrounded the house, Lot didn't seem to have any problem saying, no, don't, don't hassle these guys, but here's my virgin daughters. Go ahead and do with them whatever you want. And, and it shocks us but see, Lot had been living in Sodom for a long time. And instead of Lot's righteousness permeating the city, the wickedness of the city had influenced Lot. And so he's saying, well, yeah, I don't want you guys to be messing with these two fellows, but here, have my daughters. And yet... When the angels intervened and pulled Lot in, and we can assume that his daughters were not uh, abused uh, by the crowd that night, the angels said, do you have anybody else in the city? And he said, well, I've got some sons-in-law. Now remember, in the ancient world, the whole betrothal thing was different. Uh, they were betrothed. They had not yet come together as husband and wife. So Lot goes out and he gets to his two sons-in-law and he says, come on, God is going to destroy the city, get out of here, come with us. And scripture says they laughed at him because they thought he was joking. They didn't take him seriously. I mean, finally, finally Lot is standing up for God. He's saying, listen, God is, is angry with the wickedness and the sin of this city and he's going to bring judgment on it and you better come along with me and get out of here. But his whole life had been lived in the city lived among the wicked. There was no distinction there. And so they thought, oh, Lot, you're nuts. God's not going to do anything. You've been living here among us all the time. Why should we think God's going to get excited now? I wonder if that's why the world doesn't listen too much to the message of the church these days. Because wickedness has gotten into the church in such powerful degrees that we've lost our testimony. And nobody takes us seriously anymore. Judgment's coming. It is coming. So they, uh, they stayed in Sodom and were destroyed. And Lot himself, you know, the morning comes and the angels are saying, come on, let's get out of here. Lot's kind of dragging his feet. You know, he's pretty comfortable there. Remember, Lot's a wealthy man. He's got flocks, herds, servants. Everything he's got is right there in Sodom. You think he's going to leave all of that easily? So the angels grab them by the hand, get Lot, and Mrs. Lot, and the two daughters, and off they go, out to the city. And they say, escape to the hills. And Lot says, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. Let's, let's think about this a minute. Those mountains are a long way off. This is Roger's paraphrase, okay? Those mountains are a long way off over there. How about that little city right over there? It's just a small little city. It, it, it'll be okay. How about we run there? God graciously permitted that. But remember, that was one of the cities that was part of the wickedness of that whole area. What a tragedy. And Mrs. Lot, <laughs> Mrs. Lot gets there to the city and, and the destruction begins and, and she turns around and she looks back. Her heart was still there. Apparently Lot's heart was willing to follow God, even reluctantly. But Mrs. Lot, she turns and looks back. And the girls who had been born in that community and who grew up there and who absorbed all of the stuff of that civilization, of that society, later on get their dad drunk and have children by him. And again, our thoughts are like, oh my goodness, that is so horrible. 
But what did they grow up in? What did they see all around them? Beloved, God is able to save people out of the worst cesspool of sin that could ever exist. And we ought to thank Him for that example. He's going to bring judgment. And yet He saves people. And we, who are living in these days, should be more like Noah than like Lot. I'm sure that when Noah stands before the Lord, he's not going to have to be ashamed of anything. He's going to probably hear that well done, good and faithful sermon. But when Lot stands before the Lord, I don't think there's going to be too much of a well done there. How will it be when you and I stand before the Lord? Will we have a well done, good and faithful sermon? Or will it be more like you're here because of your faith in me. Welcome home. But there's no reward. No pat on the back. No well done. No good job. You were saved by grace through faith. But there were no works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the works of the Christian being built on that foundation which is Jesus Christ. And if you build with wood, hay, and straw on that day of, of judgment, of evaluation at the Bema Seat of Christ when He rewards us for faithfulness, there's not going to be any reward for faithfulness because it's wood, hay, and straw. It's, it's meaningless. It's worthless. If you build with gold, silver, and precious stones, and, and not literally, it's, it's the, the, the picture. Worthless works or valuable works. It's not the works that save you. It's the foundation. It's Christ. But what you do with your life afterward, whether it's a life like Noah, a preacher of righteousness, or whether it's a life like Lot, who just really had no testimony and no influence and was saved, as it were, by the skin of his teeth. Beloved, Peter puts these illustrations here for us to encourage us to be as godly as we possibly can be. Don't settle for an existence like Lot. His life was miserable. The whole, the whole thing was miserable. Now, be more like Noah. <laughs> be one who is sold out completely to God. The one who is able to weather the storm when the judgment comes. The one who's going to be welcomed into God's presence with a well-done, good, and faithful servant. And beloved, take heart. Because even though it seems like evil is increasing on a daily basis, God is not fooled. God is fully aware. God is waiting, giving people opportunity to repent. But there is a day when judgment will fall. Act upon that now. If you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're living in the world, and, and, and you know there's this tension inside of you, the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment, don't leave this place without turning to Jesus Christ, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, turning the other way, you'll be saved. You'll begin a relationship with Jesus Christ that will be continued into eternity. And God will begin to work in your life and you will begin to grow and you will begin to be more like Christ. And, and when you stand before Him, He'll welcome you into His presence. But if you reject Jesus Christ, there's only one thing for you. It's the same thing that Satan and his angels are experiencing, or will experience, and that is the lake of fire forever and ever. Don't delay in giving your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've covered a lot of territory this morning. And
Lord, it's just amazing to us all that you have included in your word. Father, we pray that you will open hearts and minds. If there's any here this morning that don't know Christ as their Savior, Father, please bring such conviction upon their souls that they will turn to you and be saved. For you are a God who delights in mercy. You delight in grace. Your word says concerning the wicked, what pleasure do I have in the when the wicked perish, but rather that they should turn to me and live. Father, I pray that if there's any of us here today that don't know Jesus Christ, that they will turn to him and live. Father, for those of us who know you, we still live in this world. And this world is no friend of grace. This world does not help us along in our relationship with you, but instead this world and all of its systems and all of its pleasures and all of its stuff wants to pull us away from you. Oh God, forgive us for those times when we've been like Lot and we've tried to live in the world and, and we've let the world influence us far more than we've influenced it. Father, help us to be more like Noah, more like one who walks with you day by day by day, one who experiences your mercy and grace, one who is faithful to you, even in the midst of a world that is corrupt and under judgment. God, help us. Help us, O oh God, to be faithful in the times in which we live. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.